I'm Janet Forrest, and this is the Nantucket Athenaeum Podcast. In this season of the podcast, my colleague James Greeter and I are going to take you on a journey through time. You'll find out about the faces and frivolities that graced, or maybe disgraced, the stage of the Great Hall. You'll meet musicians, lecturers, and illusionists, some of repute and some, well, not. Who were these folks that made the long 30-mile trek to Nantucket, and how were they received by the islanders? Welcome to Tonight in Athenaeum Hall. This is Episode 1, Family Singing Troops. On Saturday, June 24, 1843, the following announcement appeared in the Inquirer and Mirror. Aeolians, second concert. The Hutchinson family respectfully announced to the ladies and gentlemen of Nantucket that they will give another vocal entertainment at Athenaeum Hall on Monday evening, June 26th, when they will introduce their popular music. For program, see Small Bills. Tickets for 25 cents each to be had at the usual place and at the door. Concert to commence at 8 o'clock. James, let's start by talking a little bit about the background of family singing troops. Back in the early 19th century, most people's experience of music was through their local church. It was a way that the churches used to teach the church doctrines, and it was accessible to people who were listening to these songs and being taught these songs. And there were music teachers who would come, and uh, they were singing masters, as they were known, and they would teach what was called shaped singing to the congregation. And then also they would perform concerts themselves on the side to make a little extra cash. They would write songbooks and things, and eventually one of them became something called the Sacred Harp. And essentially, it was four-part harmonies. You, the people were sitting facing one another. The harmonies were very tight. It was a social engagement as well as a religious one. Over time, though, those two things started to kind of split a little bit. At the time, any average kid in a, a small town, in, especially in New England, would be familiar with the songs from these songbooks. So it was part and parcel of their daily life. Along comes in the 18, late 1820s, 1830s, a family from overseas who was coming to America, as many did, to seek their fortune. They were from, I think it's pronounced Tyrol, in, it's in Austria, an area in the Alps, northern Italy, that sort of area. Uh, think Ricola, I guess, maybe, that kind of imagery, because <laughs> they, they're the ones that are responsible for establishing that sort of lederhosen, the Von Trapp kind of picture that we all have in our heads right. <laughs> <laughs> from that time, you know, from that time period. So they came to the, the States and were an instant sensation. They'd been on tour in Europe, played for uh, the king. Uh, and when they arrived here, they immediately caused a sensation wherever they went. They were dressed, as I said, in traditional lederhosen and so forth. And their closely knit four-part harmonies they resonated with American audiences because of their own background, but it also had kind of a unique element to it in the way that they were harmonized that evoked sort of that Swiss Alps kind of clear ringing streams and sounds and things of that sort. So naturally, as soon as people saw this family, the Rayner family, making their huge amounts of money as everywhere they went, they were clearing $100 at the gate every night, which was phenomenal at a time when most traveling performers didn't make very much at all. 
So naturally, other people wanted to get in on the act. And so the thing was, you needed to kind of have a hook, I guess, is what they figured. You got to have some kind of costume, whether it's lederhosen or uh, dressing as a Viking, whatever it was to sort of stand out from all these other hosts of people that were traveling around the country at the time doing the same thing. One of their imitators was a family by the name of the Hughes family. David Hughes, along with his wife, Catherine, and their four kids, they arrived in New York City from their native Wales in 1840. So this is just a few years uh, after the Rainers first appeared here on the shores. They were already seasoned performers themselves because they'd been touring English concert halls for some years before emigrating to the States. But they saw the success that the Rainers were having and uh, wanted to make the move to what they saw as a very lucrative market, potentially. Very shortly after they arrived here in the States, they started touring, as I said, and they appeared at a variety of venues, including at the White House, where they performed for President Martin Van Buren. Taking their cue from the Rainers, they wore, quote unquote, traditional Welsh dress to make their act more memorable. And one thing that this particular group had was that they were all child prodigies. It was not, uh, you know, adult singers in their 20s. These were small children. The shtick was they could perform on multiple instruments at the same time. So if you see in the illustration that I had sent to you, and maybe we can include that on the post at some point, there's one of the children and they're all dressed in these sort of lace collars <laughs> and big, almost looking like uh, the pilgrims, kind of that kind of look to them. And uh, one of them is playing two harps at the same time. Well, and like you you kind of understated it, like little, little, like they were like three or four, right? They were they tiny. Were tiny. Yeah. Playing yeah, these they- massive instruments. <laughs> So they must, I mean, I'm sure they looked adorable. I'm, I, right. I you know. <laughs> the cute factor was huge. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so they're up there, they're plucking away and singing their hearts out. And uh, so they were known as the Cambrian infants, Cambria being another name for whales. In, in that same uh, illustration, you'll also see that there's a figure in the center, John, who's the oldest, and he is performing on a concertina which is kind of like an accordion, a smaller accordion. And it noted in the article that at the, in the paper at the time, that it was a brand new instrument. And indeed it had just been invented like a year before that. So he's up, up on stage with this newfangled instrument and they're, they're wearing their costumes, they're playing harps and everything. And uh, as you said, Margaret, for, for example, is only three years old up there on the stage. She's actually standing on a table because she's so short. And their first concert was uh, in Boston in 1841. Before too long, they were here on Nantucket. Their tour brought them to the Athenaeum for a performance in September of that same year. So about two months after they were in Boston and they were billed as the quote, celebrated Cambrian infant minstrels. Following their appearance at the Athenaeum, the Hughes family then went on to go to Boston, New York and other cities along the East Coast through the remainder of the 1840s. And then we kind of lose sight of them after that, possibly because the kids kind of grew out of the act, maybe didn't want to do it anymore. I could certainly see that happening with my child. <laughs> like, I don't want to do this anymore, dad. Do we have any idea how they booked these gigs? Like, were they just that popular and just that in demand that they could just go wherever and people would say, yeah, 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 come on in? It seems like there's this tradition of these impresarios that did a lot of the booking along the lines of a P.T. Barnum. There was a fellow named Purim who showed up here multiple times uh, with various, any different times he would be with different acts. It might be uh, a family singer's act. It might be a set of stage actors doing some short plays. And so it was, I think there was like an agent who acted as the intercessor between the bands themselves and whoever word is that they were going but it does seem like it was made, it was done on fairly short notice because sometimes they make changes to their itinerary and, you know, maybe they've been told they can't come to town or something, but 
they were just the first after the Rainers to kind of make their their image more than just the singing. It was about the look. And so we start to see more and more of this happening. And there was another family, perhaps the most famous family singers who ever sang together until you get to the, maybe the Partridge family. They started out as a small town group of singers in New Hampshire. It was a brother by the name of John. He went and saw the, the Rainers in concert and was like, this is it. We've got to do this. Goes home, gets his two younger brothers, three younger brothers, and like drills them incessantly on these harmonies that he's just heard. And uh, they start doing the same thing. They, they decide they're going to perform first in New Hampshire, where they're from, and eventually further afield. John left the quartet. John was the, the eldest. He left the, the quartet to manage the group. And the brothers added their sister, Abby, in 1842. And there's a picture in the NHA's archives that shows the four of them uh, sitting together. Uh, they must have sat for a, a daguerreotype or a photograph here. It must have been a daguerreotype at the time. There are some other ones that I've seen as well that are, it really, I think, sheds a really interesting light on the family. There's one that I've seen of all of them together. And at this point, there, there are like 12 of them. It's a big family. And they actually split into two different groups. And I'll, I'll tell you about that more in a minute. But they were kind of like rock stars. Like in, you think of pictures from the 1840s, right, of very sort of rigid. They don't move very much. They're very stolid. In this picture, one of them's got his head on his brother's shoulder and somebody's lying across the other person's lap. And it was a very kind of what we would consider, I guess, like a casual photograph today that we would take ourselves. And I think it gives an idea of the, the humor behind their act. But they were also really serious about what they were doing because they believed that music had the power to not only express their beliefs, but also create communities in the hope of bringing about social change. And they would go on to evolve into a much more socially and politically active group. But their origins were in the same sort of like, we have to have a shtick. So, well, and they started with a name, right? They weren't the Hutchinson family singers initially, right? That was, yes. And that was very confusing when I was going through the archives because it said the Aeolians are coming. The Aeolians. Uh, Aeolus is one of the winds. I forget if it's west or east or whoever it was. But they were kind of evoking that same kind of the Rainers, Alps. They were from New Hampshire. So they really played into the whole Granite State image. This was at a time when tourism was really being created at the same time that the frontier was going forward. The White Mountains tour was a big deal for a lot of folks. And Senya Hawthorne wrote about his trips to these cabins in, in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire, where it was really the cutting edge of the Anglo civilization. But it was also people were coming to tour that place as well, even as the frontier was being expanded. And so there was that same kind of rugged, granite-faced, stolid American, you know, 100% American know-how and, and strength that they were kind of evoking with this Aeolian sound or name. And in fact, their sort of theme song was the old granite state. And so they also dressed in costume. They kind of went with kind of a lace, lacy kind of collar initially. And again, did the things like playing multiple instruments, playing an instrument with their foot, Everybody was trying to find, you know, a different way to kind of stand out from the crowd. These Aeolian vocalists, shortly after their first performance in 1843 in Faneuil Hall in Boston, they were here on Nantucket in June of that year. So within six months, they were on Nantucket. Talk a little bit about what was happening on Nantucket at the time of their visit. 
right? So, okay, this is this is great because this is part of Nantucket's history that doesn't get talked about as much as it used to, but it was the sheep shearing festivals, the annual sheep shearing festivals, which were a huge tourist attraction before the whaling industry was even a glimmer in anybody's eye, really. I mean, it was it was on its way up, but they've been doing this since the founding of the of the colony. And it was now such a big deal that people would come from off island to attend this because it was more than just sheep shearing. It was there were tents, there were activities, there were, as I'm about to describe, there were concerts. It was a it was a big social occasion for a lot of folks. This sheep shearing festival, at the sheep shearing festival, owners would wash and sort their sheep. Visitors would arrive, um, and there'd be all kinds of visitors from folks in their old-fashioned Nantucket calashes, which are those barrel-shaped wagons, or the wagons with a barrel wheel on it, to more sophisticated carts from town that would bring people in from off-island. That particular year, there was a new addition to the lineup of events going on. It involved a social trend that was occurring all at the same time that the Hutchinsons were evolving, sheep shearing was kind of on the wane, American society was changing, and that was the abstinence movement. So America in the 19th century had a real drinking problem. It had increased apparently from the 18th century to the point where the amount per person was just phenomenal. And so there was a backlash to that, starting with more of a, uh, we need to address this because it's a social ill. But around this time, you start seeing a more modern temperance movement, by which I mean, it was people that were reformed alcoholics themselves. Mm-hmm. As opposed to somebody coming in and saying, this is bad, look at this drunk person, this poor wretch, we need to save them from the evils of alcohol. This was more about people talking about their personal experiences with alcohol and how, how it had affected them. And out of that, what was called the Washingtonian movement, grew the Cold Water Army, which was uh, an army of young children who all had pledged to drink just cold water and never drink spiritous liquids or liquors. It was a huge movement in the country, but also here on Nantucket. They had a tent, a 100-foot-long tent, 50 feet wide and 30 feet high, erected by the Washington Total Abstinence Society for the accommodation of the Cold Water Army, a 300-strong troop of children who marched through the streets of town, accompanied by a brass band, and they were heading out to the shearing pen. So this is a big, a big deal. Like We haven't seen a parade like this on Nantucket in some time. It sounded like the whole town was there for this event. And the big billing of the day was this new group, the Hutchinsons, but they were called the Aeolians at the time. They were performing after a series of other performances in town. There was a play called The Reformed Drunkard that was put on. It was very popular at the time. And the Hutchinsons fully embraced all of these causes uh, over the course of time. They eventually went on to abandon their Swiss Alps costumes. And they renamed themselves, basically. They decided that they were going to, how they were going to make their mark was by speaking to the, directly to the American people as Americans and of their experience. They weren't going to try to follow in anybody else's footsteps. And so they embraced political action in their singing and became very staunch abolitionists, abstinence uh, supporters, as, I, as we mentioned at the, the top. And it's interesting because we, you know, now everything's so polarized, but we think about kind of values. I think today it's an interesting set of values because I did look it up after you talked about them finding a town in Hutchinson, Minnesota. And in that town, it forbade liquor, bowling alleys, gambling of all types, but it granted that women shall enjoy equal rights with men and shall have the privilege of voting in all matters not restricted by law. Yeah. So 
amazingly progressive for their time mm-hmm. and sort of of a piece with the other social movements that were all very much intertwined at the time. A lot of the time uh, here, you will see the same people who are in the absent society are in the anti-slavery groups that were here that are in women's suffrage movements. They were all people that were sort of knew one another and were involved in this various social issues that were important to Americans at that time. And the Hutchinsons landed like a grenade. I mean, they, they really were sort of rock stars of their time. And they were, they were treated as that by crowds that would show up for them. And they made just absolutely tremendous, tremendous amounts of money. Eventually, as I said, went on to actually split into two groups, one of which went on to tour in Europe, and the other one continued to tour here in the States. Of those two groups, the original quartet went on to tour Great Britain with Frederick Douglass, who was a friend of theirs. Uh, he really believed in their mission and their their the idea that music could transcend uh, social barriers and maybe reach a new audience that they hadn't been able to appeal to before. And in fact, they drew a record audience of 4,000 people on a single night in Manchester in England. A significant crowd for you know, these simple American singers who were here. But again, they were like, it was like the Beatles in reverse. They were, everybody wanted to see them. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking a little bit that because you think about folk rock, you think about the sixties where you had the groups that had the same outfit and it was kind of a shtick and they sang these very catchy earworm songs, Yeah, but then there were the groups that could transcend that and really speak out politically and be vocal about issue progressive issues because they had enough power, they had enough kind of clout in that world to kind of just say what they want because they had, you know, reached that level of popularity. And it was a it was not an easy road to get there. The other siblings who stayed behind in the States, they had a harder time of it than the folks across the pond because uh, they insisted on performing to racially integrated theaters, which was not necessarily a thing at the time, especially in certain parts of the country. So they did have some opposition, but eventually made such a huge impression on the nation that they went on to meet Blinken. And when I think it was McClellan complained about their abolitionist, their radical ideas that they were singing about in camp for the soldiers, Lincoln said, that's exactly the kind of thing I want them to hear, basically. Like, he got what the what they were all about and what role they could play. It also reminds me of, like, the USO and World War II, where you're both entertaining the troops, but you're also talking about the issues that they're fighting about and why they're there and gave them a, a different way of looking at it, maybe a, a different way of approaching what they've been doing. As you dug into these singer groups and learned a little bit more about them, what was the thing that surprised you the most? I think that it's it was interesting that sort of the whole rock star image is much older than we think that it is in some ways. The mania that appeared when these when these folks first arrived on the shores, again, before this, the music was all sort of church-based music for the most part. You might have amateur musicians that would put on a show, but you know, at this time, America was trying to find itself in, in, in the world order, and so Europe became much more prominent as a cultural influence than it had been when we were still part of the colonies. Uh, in fact, shape singing is part of an early musical tradition that was organic here to the States that kind of died out a little bit, or at least went underground when the European culture started to make a larger impact here. And that was why the Rainers, for example, made such an impact when they came here, because 
they were European, but they also had that element of freedom to them, which Americans like to associate themselves with. And of course, the costumes. Um, <laughs> Never so, underestimate a good costume. Uh, just ask Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> it's an act. It's all part of that larger. It's not just the music. It's there's the image as well. That has a longer tradition than maybe that I had been aware of before that. Also, I think just how radical they were in their politics at the time. 1840s, we're talking about a time where there were riots, anti-abolition riots in New York City, in which individual abolitionist homes were burned. Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison, when he was in Boston, he was chased through the mob by a mob through the streets and had to be had to hide in the jail to protect himself. So this was not a time when abolitionism as such was popular in the North or the South. Them taking that stand like that it was a risk. It was a calculated risk, certainly. I mean, they knew uh, they had a certain amount of savvy about what they were getting themselves into, but not everybody's going to be happy with what they were singing about. And again, they did find places where they ended up not performing because they were not allowed to perform to an integrated crowd. Remarkable for the time. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was hosted and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Reference Library Associate James Greeter for his knowledge and research. The opening announcement was voiced by Andrew Cromarty. Please check the show notes for more information and references. You can find all the previous episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have an idea for what we should talk about next, send us an email at jforest at nantucketathenaeum.org. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. You can find us online at nantucketathenaeum.org or search at Nantucket Athenaeum on Facebook and Instagram. 